Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Wednesday, March 31st. I'm your host, Jason Moser. On today's Wildcard Wednesday show, we're digging into a couple of companies in the retail space at very different points in their publicly traded lives. Joining me this week, it's Vice President of Motley Fool Ventures, Mr. Brendan Matthews. Brendan, how's everything going? Great. Hey, Jason. Hey, so glad you're here with us this week. Uh, we had been chatting back and forth here over the past few days and thought it would be fun to take a, a look today at a couple of companies in the home goods and furnishing space. Uh, one company that seems to be defining the future in Wayfair, and another company that is fighting very hard to remain a part of it in Bed Bath and Beyond. And I mean, these are two companies that that you and I have followed for a while. I think you and I held relatively similar convictions for a long time on both companies as well, uh, and, and for understandable reasons. But but let's go ahead and just let's start the conversation with Wayfair. Um, I think actually. This is a stock that you and I both own, Brendan. We've owned it for a little while. We feel really good about it, and uh, clearly, it's it's been a it's been a tremendous uh, past year for the business. Uh, just as, as a reminder for our listeners, just real quick, what what's Wayfair in a nutshell? Tell tell us what Wayfair the business actually is. It's e-commerce for home furnishing, home goods. Uh, yeah. It's almost everything under the sun you would need for your home and it's drop shipped directly from suppliers to you. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I think the interesting thing about Wayfair and in what I think what attracted me to this business so early, I think what attracted both of us to this business so early on was this idea of of it being really more or less just a network, right? I mean, this is this is not this is not your typical Traditional retail store. I mean, this is not a store that's carrying a lot of inventory. Um, it, it's really it's an online network that is connecting buyers and sellers. But I mean, really, there's a lot of value in the suppliers, right? I mean, that they they're a part of that Wayfair network, and then through all of the brands that Wayfair owns, it's not just Wayfair, right? It's a number of different brands under that umbrella. Um, I mean, really, connecting all of those suppliers with consumers. Uh, initially around the country, but now Wayfair is clearly uh, becoming a global business, and and that that seems to be accelerating as well. Um, I, I think, and that, and that leads me really to, to the first the first question, the first point I wanted to to, to discuss with you in regard to Wayfair, in, in sort of a key to its success at this point is in in regard to the competitive advantage I, I think that's that's part of it right it's that network dynamic versus being that traditional stodgy uh capital intense retailer right so they have they have no um or or limited overhead and and a huge selection uh 22 million products on the website from 16,000 suppliers and it's no simple thing to a have that all on a website all the inventory connected to have the products displayed in a way that's curated and a way that um, people can um, sort of browse through them versus sort of a, a long catalog on Amazon. And what they've done over the sort of six or seven years that we've followed them is they've also built some distribution capability. So they have a, 
a logistics network. If you're ordering furniture, it can be uh, expensive to ship. And one of the things they've done is they've built sort of what they call a middle mile. It's this castle gate logistics network and then a last mile. So what they're doing is they're helping sort of use scale and technology to bring down the shipping costs. So I think that, I think that's a big, um, that's a big mo. And then the other thing we should sort of think about a little bit is they spend pretty heavily on advertising. They right. spend over 10% of their revenue on advertising. And for a company that is still establishing itself, still growing, not, not necessarily profitable, um, that's a big investment. And, th- and they're doing it because they need to make people aware. They need to build a brand. They need to be the go-to place when people are shopping for this kind of stuff. And I, I think we've seen them make big strides in that, in that direction. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm glad you you brought up the the point there regarding distribution and, and the investments that they've made in that because I think initially when Wayfair first went public, and honestly, I'll tell you, I mean, I, I remember looking at this when they when they were getting ready to go public, I, I didn't think they were gonna be able to go public. I honestly thought Amazon was going to acquire Wayfair before Wayfair ever had the chance to go public, and it, that obviously didn't happen. And that could be for any number of reasons. I mean, you've got founder leaders that are, that are calling the shots there, and, and, and it, I'm sure that they probably wanted the opportunity just to grow this business. They had an idea. I'm sure they were probably looking at Amazon as a bit of a blueprint of of what they could do. Um, and, and I think you've really keyed in on some of the the keys to their success. I mean, it's distribution, it's creating this this superior buying experience. I mean, I, as, as a consumer, have you have you ever compared shopping for these types of items on Amazon versus shopping for them on Wayfair? I have, and, and one of the things that Amazon so Amazon is great. They have everything if you know what you need. Right. Um, if, if I were to just say, say I was to buy an ottoman or something like that, if I just put in ottoman in in Amazon, there would be choices for me. But I think if I were to do the same on Wayfair, I, I would it would do a better job of helping me pick out um, a product that's not necessarily branded. Now, if it's a if it's a branded product that I already know, if I need a new pair of AirPods, I'll just go to Amazon. But if it's something where I need them to kind of walk me through the experience and I need to look at a bunch of pictures um, and I need them to help me figure it out, I think Wayfair does a better job of that. Yeah, I think it always it always struck me that, I mean, the shopping experience has always, to me, at least been superior on Wayfair. I think part of that is is due, due to what you, what you mentioned there. I mean, I think, you know, it, it, you look for something like a, an Ottoman, for example. I mean... There's not really a brand. I don't think most consumers really have a brand preference or know of leading brands in the furniture world, right? I mean, it's not like there's a Farben out there that everybody's just like, oh, well, that's a Farben, you know? I mean, that, that's people aren't looking at, at, at furniture, I think, from that perspective. So to your to your point, I mean, they go in there knowing something that they want, but they're not sure exactly what they want. And Wayfair really opens up that that opportunity. Uh, in that world of of possibilities there, uh, which yeah, I mean, I, I think that makes a big difference, and that's just that's really, I think, 
one of the insular insular qualities of that particular market that they're pursuing. I mean, I think it goes to show that companies focused on a specific market. Um, there, there's a way to exist, and there's a way to win in an Amazon world. We've seen other companies like Etsy, for example, do do very much the same thing, focusing on that one specific niche and, and really uh, building out expertise in that niche. Because when you look at the market opportunity, I was I was digging into one of Wayfair's recent investor presentations, and and we like to talk about total total market opportunity, total available market, and then you have Sam, which is the serviceable uh, addressable market. But I, I, when you look at Wayfair and, and the numbers that they quote, they're talking about a total addressable market in 2020 of around $840 billion globally that they see uh, going, going up towards $1 trillion by 2030. So, I mean, this is a massive market opportunity. When, I mean, Wayfair is what, $14 billion in sales last year. Seems like there's a lot of room to run for this business, but what are some of the metrics that you would look at for Wayfair to to judge the progress, to judge success? What are the metrics that matter for you when it comes to Wayfair? Uh, so for Wayfair specifically, um, we tend to look at revenue growth. So that's that's very big. Um, the other thing we look at is um, the total number of active customers. Yeah. So as of, I think, their most recent quarter, they had 31 million active customers. Um, and one of, the, one of the reasons that's important is you want to kind of get people to order and then order again. Yeah. Um, it's sort of the lifeblood of, of, of e-commerce. And so I'd look at their active customers and then look what kind of business they're doing from repeat customers. Yeah. So I think the most recent quarter, they did 70% from re- repeat customers. Now, you don't necessarily buy furniture every week or every quarter, but if you're if you if you order, I think you have sort of a propensity to order again if you need something later in the year or the next year. And so we sort of want them to keep building up that user base. So um, just to reiterate, like the the top level is going to be total 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 sales, so up forty five percent in the in the most recent quarter. And then like yeah, that repeat customers. Um, metric to me has always been crucial. And that goes back to what you were talking about earlier with the amount of money that they spend on marketing, right? Advertising, uh, those, those SG&A costs that for a younger business, they're, they're requisite. I mean, you have to do that. You have to get your name out there. You got to kind of spend money to make money, as they say. But part of the thesis with Wayfair, not the whole thing, but part of it at least has been over time, you see that repeat customer number continue to grow, particularly as the active customers number continues to grow, as, as, as you explained. They don't have to pay as much to acquire those repeat customers. Essentially, they don't have to pay for them, right? I mean, it's expensive to get a new customer on board. You got to keep that customer. And, and that repeat customers number, right? I mean, the repeat customers play 72.5% of total orders delivered in the fourth quarter of 2020 for Wayfair, that was versus 68.6% a year ago. And that number over the over the past several years has just continued to march steadily upwards. I mean, they've done a tremendous job in getting people to come back and buy more. And, and yeah, you're not probably buying furniture a lot, but home furnishings, generally speaking, 
people are buying home furnishings a lot, and and it's a big world, obviously. And so when you focus on an international or global market opportunity, I mean, you can you can see uh, why they start to build out the offering, build out the supplier network, in in, in the things that they sell because. It, it, there, there's so much opportunity out there based on those numbers uh, of, of the total addressable market. And um, the other thing that struck me uh, with with Wayfair, and, and and I think that really the pandemic, uh, 2020, really sort of uh, accelerated this. I mean, it, it accelerated their opportunity to get towards meaningful and sustainable profitability. Uh, but but gross margin for a business like this is important. I mean, it's important in retail, but I think with Wayfair, it's particularly important because gross margin includes those fulfillment costs as well. And and to see what they've been able to do on the gross margin side, um, it was 29% uh, uh, over over the, the most recent quarter versus 22.9% a year ago. And, and I feel like that gross margin expansion is here to stay because they've been, they've been afforded the time to build out that distribution like you were talking about. Right. Uh, so, so gross margin is just a... Good way for people to think about is the is the markup on the on the goods that they're paying without overhead for a unbranded product. Twenty nine percent is is pretty healthy. Yeah, yeah, particularly when you consider those those fulfillment costs and and <laughs> moving couches ain't cheap. I guess as they say. So so it seems like it's getting a little bit cheaper for them. And and honestly, as investors, that's exactly what we want to see. Um, one of the things that that Wayfair has benefited, I think, from is a consistency of vision. And and that is thanks to leadership. I mean, we've got a company here with founder leader still in place. You've got Steve Conine, co-founder, co-chairman. You've got Niraj Shah, co-founder, co-chairman, president, CEO. I mean, these guys have been working together to build this business out for a while. And, and while founders as meaningful owners and leaders isn't necessarily a reason to buy, it, it's certainly something we like to see, and I feel like that's an asset for this business. Yeah, so insiders own twenty five percent of the company, which is a lot yeah. when you consider it's a I think a thirty five billion dollar company. Uh-huh. So uh, I think eleven percent for Steve and eleven percent for Naraj. So in excess of three billion dollars worth of shares for each of them. That is a uh, should be a motivator for them. Um, it should also. Um, I think it's a good reason for them to be aligned with shareholders because they're the biggest shareholders themselves. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I absolutely could see being the owner of a business wanting to ensure its success. And I mean, if you if you own a good chunk of it, well, that's incentive right there. You're certainly not in the business of losing money. And and I think, uh, yeah, what we've seen is is uh, while there may have been some skepticism early on in in its life, uh, and there was plenty of it out there, and, and that was understandable at least. I mean, I think they've the market has been giving them a little bit of wiggle room to build this thing out. And and you fast forward to today. This is a much stronger, uh, much healthier, much larger company than it was just just even three to, to five years ago. But but looking towards twenty twenty one, and even beyond. I mean, we're we're exiting this this pandemic. Uh, it, it, things will start to get back to normal, and that will change some businesses' outlooks as opposed to others. To me, I'm not necessarily. Uh, sure that it changes a whole heck of a lot in, in regard to the the outlook with Wayfair. I, I think that Wayfair is 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 going to continue to 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 do well. But what are some of the things you're keeping an eye on here for the coming year and beyond? What what are some of the things you'll be watching with Wayfair as they continue to grow? 
So I, I am going to watch revenue growth. They had a they had a, a much better than expected 2020, and they did benefit from the the pandemic. We saw that across all of e-commerce. I think there's going to be probably a deceleration in growth when people have more of an option to go to stores. Uh, but I think you and I are philosophically sort of on the same page here that we don't really buy a business for a, a one-time or a one-year performance. We buy it for five, 10 years. Uh, yeah. And I think when you think five, 10 years down the, down the road, Wayfair's, uh, their stated goal is to 8x revenue by 2030. Wow. Um, that's a that's a that's an audacious goal, but I think going back to those market size figures that you stated, I, I think there's room for them to do that. That's the path they're on. So I'm definitely going to be keeping an eye on on revenue growth. I'll be willing to accept some sort of. I would expect some deceleration in the next year um, as as the reopening happens, but I'm going to be remain very focused on. Revenue growth, and then the, the things I mentioned before, active customers, repeat business. Well, if Wayfair is the company helping to dictate the future of the home furnishings and home goods market, Bed Bath & Beyond certainly is a company that is fighting to to keep its status as at least a relevant part of it. And, and for a long time, Bed Bath & Beyond has... It, well, it's been the butt of some jokes <laughs> in the investing community, and I think, and I think, deservedly so. I mean, this was a business that was, you could probably argue, was mismanaged for for a number of years. And I mean, we saw a situation here with a business where clearly top line uh, revenue continued to to decline, so they're not selling as much stuff. And then you had management that was uh, less than focused on keeping a stellar and defensive balance sheet in a, in a time like that, share repurchases uh, at, at at just some, some really astronomical stock prices, in hindsight, really, really had you wondering if they weren't trying to really sink this ship on, pur- on purpose, or, or at least try to arrange some type of a bailout or acquisition there. Uh, you fast forward to today, and I think a leadership change with Bed Bath & Beyond has, has certainly been one of the biggest catalysts for this business. But let's talk a little bit about Bed Bath & Beyond, because while this is not necessarily a company I would have been in interested in investing in a year ago, I have to say, over the past year, I'm just very impressed with what they've been doing. And I wonder, to your eye, when you look at a Bed Bath & Beyond versus something like a Wayfair, what what would you say is the competitive advantage for a Bed Bath & Beyond? Or is there even a competitive advantage for a business like, like this at this point? So, Jason, we've got the um, NCAA tournament going on. If we were to put this in uh, March Madness terms, I, you know, put the home goods market in in March Madness terms. I think Wayfair is a is a one seed. Um, Bed Bath and Bed Bath and Beyond is 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 definitely a lower seed. Um, it's a Cinderella the, story. The, it, yeah, if they win, it would be a Cinderella. And um, the way the valuation is, they don't necessarily need to uh, win. They just need to cover the spread. Right. For you to make money as an investor. Um, I think it's sort of TBD on what their competitive advantage is. They have um, around 1,200 stores now. Uh, there's there's nobody else um, specifically focused on the home goods market who has those stores. And what what they've done is they've they've brought in almost a whole new management team, and they're 
it, it, I think it's late, but they're really trying to focus more on a digital and an omni-channel strategy, mm-hmm. as well as sort of, it's a cost-cutting story, it's a turnaround story. Um, and I, I think it's, it's just really whether they can, they can execute on, on, that, on that plan. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned digital. One of the snippets I pulled from their most recent uh, earnings call. So, store decline, sales at stores, it said fell. They said fell 14. percent However, they experienced quote unquote exponential digital growth of 94. percent And I mean, for a business like this, that traditionally, I mean, we know this is a physical store. We know this as as a store. You walk into and buy stuff. Um, and, and we know that that has been a, a business model that has been under severe fire here over the over the last several years. And, and uh, I, I don't know how much you've looked into this. I'm just curious. But but one thing I noticed with Bed Bath and Beyond, and I think a lot of this um, has to do with leadership. But are you familiar with Target and their e-commerce platform, Shipped? I'm not. So one thing that stood out to me, and this this we can talk a little bit about leadership here in a moment with Mark Tritton and what he's been able to do for this company since coming over from Target. But Target, uh, back in, I think, 2017, acquired this e-commerce platform called Shipt, S-H-I-P-T. And, and it was it was more or less purchased to, to first and foremost, build out Target's uh, online presence, e-commerce presence. But they've, they've since expanded this uh, network. I mean, it, not, not since, but I mean, they, they've expanded the partnerships in this network with other retail partners around around the, the country in order to, to bring more e-commerce and omnichannel capability out there. And so, even Bed Bath & Beyond now is working with Shipt in order to, to grow that digital business. It seems to me, at least, when you look at something like a Bed Bath & Beyond, I mean, we're talking about keys to success for the future. Really, digital is going to be the. I don't know if it's the number one key, but it feels like the number one key. So it, there, there's digital, and then there's omni-channel as well. That's something Wayfair can't match. So when we say omni-channel, we mean you can buy online, you can buy in the store, you can buy online and pick up on the store. And they've during COVID in particular, they've seen a, a big um, pickup in buy online, um, pick up in the store, or you can order online, return to the store. A lot having a physical presence gives you options as a retailer to to give to the customers that you can't do if you're solely online. Uh, And we're we're still, I think, in the early days of of seeing how that strategy will work for Bed Bath & Beyond, but it's definitely something that would differentiate them from from Wayfair or Amazon or, or, or anyone else that's solely online. Yeah, and I'm glad I'm glad you said that because that is something that for for folks who thinks it's just digital world, I mean, you analyze the retail space just a little bit. You'll see that word omni-channel mentioned a lot, and omni-channel is really, really important. That's not just a buzzword. I mean, whether you're Home Depot or Bed Bath and Beyond, um, omni-channel is something that is being bandied about by a lot of these physical retailers uh, because, like you said, it's it's that that word omni-channel. It's about being wherever the customer needs you to be, and and yeah, to your point, Wayfair can't really match that. I mean, Wayfair doesn't really have that dynamic uh, in the sense that you're not going into a Wayfair store. Uh, I mean, maybe they have a pilot store somewhere. I feel like maybe I read something at some point where they were, you know, piloting some physical stores. But um, and Amazon clearly has tried that as well. It, it does seem to me that omnichannel is becoming a little bit more important than digital because omnichannel is that total retail capability, isn't it? It is, and. Um... It's interesting, Bed Bath & Beyond's other 
physical retail competitors are suffering just alongside them. Yeah. So it could be a, a situation where physical retail herd gets thinned and um, Bed Bath & Beyond is the strongest player remaining. What do you feel like the metrics matter? What, what do you feel like that are the metrics that matter most for a business like this right now, particularly one that's in transition uh, as, as Bed Bath & Beyond is? I mean, digital gives you that opportunity to parse more data, um, but you might not necessarily see that same sort of like that that repeat customer uh, that, that repeat customer uh, data point that's so valuable for something like a Wayfair. You might not necessarily have that same insight with something like a Bed Bath and Beyond. What what are the metrics that you focus on? So so definitely the the digital sales growth mm-hmm. that you mentioned. Um, I would for all retailers, you're always going to want to keep keep a um, an eye on same store sales. That's a good. Um, barometer of, of general health. And then I would also, this is a business that's in turnaround. Um, they're losing money. I would keep an eye on the cash. So they're, they're closing stores, they're selling assets. They're trying to improve gross margin to improve their cash position. They've got more debt than cash. And that's before you even kind of go into the operating leases. So I'd also keep an eye on their cash position. Yeah. The cash burn. We, we talk a lot about that burn. And if you have a company that's not generating Income or free cash flow, nothing, nothing really to continue uh, reinvesting in the business. They have to dip into the coffers, and that can be a problem over long periods of time. And honestly, that's one of the things I was so critical about Bed Bath and Beyond for so long was for a company that clearly needed to be playing defense. They kept on buying back shares at these just insane prices. It drove me nuts. I didn't understand why they did it, uh, but it seems like that's at least abated somewhat. Um, a lot of their success really seems to be. Uh, part of Mark Tritton's vision and Mark Tritton, uh, the former chief marketing officer at Target, feels like he's really um, he's really an important piece to this turnaround. What do you think there? So I think they brought in a new team. The, imp- the impetus is there. I think for the the previous team, they'd been extremely successful in traditional retail. They, they conquered the category, but just weren't ready to pivot into online. I think their, their success was almost a, gave them a, a blind spot. Um, but this new team, they they definitely have the mandate to get it done. Um, so I think that's that's really the the key thing. And what what do you what is what are you looking out for uh, for the rest of 2021 and even even beyond? Uh, no pun intended <laughs> for 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 a company like this. I mean, clearly they've got this they've got this plan. And it seems like they are starting to execute on it. But what are the things that investors who are interested here, what should they be watching for? So, so uh, this is an interesting one. As, as, an, as an investor, there would be a potential if you've got strong reopening, um, a, a big bump in metrics, so same store sales, growth margin cash, and then you've got a, a re-rating in the stock on a, a higher multiple. You could see a bit of a, a short-term jump, especially if it looks like the turnaround is taking place. Um, philosophically, that's not the way I, I tend to invest. Um, I tend to kind of prefer to go with the, the longer term opportunity yeah. than, than the short term. Um, I would, it's funny you mentioned the share repurchases. So I kind of looked this up between 2012 and 2016, they spent $7 billion on share repurchases. Nice. The current market cap is 3.5 billion. So so they, they they could have bought the at today's prices they could have bought the company twice over um, 
they've actually got another, they've got another 825 million authorized for share repurchases, which is like part of the playbook when you're, when you're a kind of a struggling business and you're trying to turn things around, you tell the market, well, we're going to buy back our shares. They're cheap. Um, That's a little, if, if they do make a turnaround and the shares do pop, it's going to be, it will in hindsight turn out to be a great move, but it, it definitely makes me nervous. I feel like in a year or two, if they've spent this 825 million, they could be looking at their balance sheet, looking at their cash coffers and saying, you know, I wish I had a few hundred million around um, <laughs> to invest in the say, business. That share repurchasing data that you just lobbed out there. I mean, if we if we if we had sound effects, I feel like you insert the toilet flushing sound right there because that's just money being flushed down the toilet. I mean, I I, I really that was why I was giving them such a hard time for so long because they were buying those shares back at such high prices and the share price just continued to fall because the business was performing so poorly and you could see that through the financials it just seemed to be seemed to me to be very misguided management and uh, and it really does go to show that that poor leadership can really have a profound impact i mean uh, it goes it goes back to that uh, what's that warren buffett quote something like find a business that can be run by a ham sandwich or something like that <laughs> eventually a ham sandwich will yeah. yeah, I mean, it's definitely, it's certainly the, uh, it's certainly a capital allocation mistaken in hindsight. Yeah, yeah, just a good lesson, a good reminder for folks out there. Share repurchases not always a good thing, uh, so just just kind of keep that in mind and, and assess those share repurchase plans. Uh, in tandem with the actual performance of the business, uh, much like we love to add to winners here at the Fool, right? I mean, those are that's that's kind of the same idea. I mean, I'm not saying I want to see companies just dropping coin on on repurchasing shares while while the shares just continue to march higher. But by the same token, those shares marching higher along when you look at the financials of the business, they can be a good indicator that uh, you know the business is performing well. So so you just you, you got to take that stuff in context and and look a little bit deeper. Share repurchases not always a good thing. And Brendan, we'll wrap up the discussion here. I just think it's fascinating to look at these two businesses side by side over the past five years. It's it's really, I mean, you can see over the last five years, to your point about long-term uh, focus, they're taking the longer view. Over the last five years, Bed Bath & Beyond is down 40%. Shares of Bed Bath & Beyond are down 40%, while Wayfair uh, shares up 680%. And then if you look at the three-year window, Wayfair up 370%. Now, Bed Bath & Beyond, a little bit more of a palatable, uh, positive 41% return. Over the last year, and this to me is pretty amazing, actually. Over the last year, Bed Bath & Beyond shares have outperformed Wayfair rather significantly. Bed Bath & Beyond shares over the last year up 605% to Wayfair's 511 and then year to date, both companies uh, performing performing relatively well. But hey, Bed Bath and Beyond has the edge there, so it sounds at least like maybe management's onto something here. And uh, for for all of the all of the jokes that we made at, at Bed Bath and Beyond's expense here uh, over over the last several years, maybe maybe it's time we changed our, our tune a little bit. So Brendan, uh, before we leave. I just wanted to give our listeners a chance here real quick. For those looking to learn more about Motley Fool Ventures, what you and the team are doing over there at Motley Fool Ventures, where can they go? So you can go to foolventures.com. And we are uh, actively investing in companies. If you're the founder of a technology company, if you have 500000 in revenue and 100% year-over-year growth, um, you can email me at brendan at foolventures.com. Uh, we are 
looking for technology companies. Uh, we are open to people from all backgrounds. We definitely love to hear from folks who are from groups that are traditionally underrepresented in venture capital. So that would be female founders, black and Latinx founders. And we always uh, are interested in businesses that are doing good things for the world in addition to making money. Well, that sounds like a very good combo, and we'd love to see what you guys are doing there at Motley Fool Ventures. Uh, been an exciting part of our business here now. Just, just still, still kind of new. You guys are, you guys have, haven't been in existence all that long, but but you've made a lot of progress in a short period of time, and it's exciting to watch. So, uh, listen, I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us today uh, for this week's Wildcard episode. We'll have to do it again real soon. And uh, Jason, I'm going to take this last opportunity to thank you because. Back in 2014, 2015, when we were uh, working together, I think on Stock Advisor and looking at Bed Bath & Beyond, you said, hey, you should look at this company Wayfair. And I said, that's, what is this, some dot-com losing money? <laughs> anyway, a lot more conversations went from there. I bought shares, I think, in September and March of 2015. And I'm, I'm, I'm getting close to a 10-bagger. Hey, um, I think I bought shares about 33 dollars so nice. i am giving you this thank you there will be no monetary reward but i am giving you this public thank you well i appreciate that brendan and as, as a fellow wayfair shareholder i am i i feel your joy <laughs> i feel your joy uh given the numbers that we've talked about today i, I feel like i'm hanging on these shares for a little while longer uh because it sounds like the future is bright Bed Bath & Beyond, I'm still on the fence, but I tell you, I'm liking what I'm seeing, and I'm definitely, the jokes are done. I, I tell you, Mark Tritton, I'm a believer, and I like what these guys are doing. Uh, I think investors would be wise to keep keep an eye on this one for sure. Uh, but folks, I think that's going to do it for us this week. Remember, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at MF Industry Focus, or you can drop us an email at industryfocus at fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks, as always, to Tim Sparks for putting the show together for us. For Brendan Matthews, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. 